I give it a 10 out of 10. Um, Valid. I, <laughs> but you you feel that coming off of him, and right. I think that is what people don't consider. Like, oh, I could be an actor. This is weird because I'm having more fun watching this behind the scenes <laughs> stuff than I was like actually watching the movie. I mean, you don't even have to put artificial intelligence in something to move a box from here to here. Just tell it, move a box. The music uh, was done by Benjamin Wallfish. And <laughs> Good job. <laughs> they, they, they laid back, collected a check and hit one, one key on the, on the piano. Welcome to Backseat Directing. Where we talk about movies, TV shows, comics, and more. We're your hosts, Andrew and Aaron. We post new episodes every Monday and Thursday. And on this episode, we're going over Blade Runner 2049. Three, two, one, action. I was watching a YouTube video the other day, and on the YouTube video, they had our theme song playing. Hold and on. I was like, you guys Hold didn't on. ask permission. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening here? <laughs> I know that song. That's my song. <laughs> you, ever just, you ever just listen to it in the car? No, I don't. <laughs> but it's good it's enough a, it's, a, it's a pretty hype song. It is. All, All right, right, Andrew. Blade Runner 2049 is the topic of conversation today, which means we also had to watch Blade Runner, or at least I did, because it was uh, I haven't seen it before. Um, and you know how I am about old movies. It took me forever to get through that movie, man. Like three days, four days, pause, start, pause, start. <laughs> I think I fell asleep twice. I think uh, the movies kind of have a similarity to each other in the fact that they're both very visually stunning, but they definitely can be slow so the the reason i really wanted to do this or i i i just wanted to watch 2049 i didn't even like recommend it as like an episode topic i was just like hey like i'm gonna watch it this week if you want to do an episode on it we can but i really wanted to watch it just because of how it looked like i've never heard anyone really say like oh 2049 is a great movie you know like you have to go watch it amazing story whatever like i felt like there were I haven't heard a lot of hype about it before, other than, wow, it looks amazing. And I don't know, I've been on this like kick of just lighting, color grading, you know, composition, just the cinematography aspect of filmmaking. And I was like, yeah, that looks great. I want to I want to watch it because of how it looks. Yeah, I mean, I've I noticed that you've had more of an interest in colors. I've seen you with your coloring book out, mm -hmm. um, mostly inside the lines. You're getting a lot better. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I think I, I definitely appreciate the cinematography and color design of this <laughs> movie as well. Um, no, I think that, like I said, both movies can be kind of slow, and both movies can kind of lack. Um, kind of that real love from viewers that some sci-fi movies have like it doesn't have the following that Star Wars has or Star Trek has but it's definitely a very unique sci-fi story and both of them are like 
gorgeous movies. They're beautiful. I think there's a conversation to be had about Blade Runner 2049 definitely being the top 10 most aesthetic movies of all time. Yeah, I could agree with that. It looked amazing. And that's kind of what kept me interested in the movie the whole time. That and Ryan Gosling. I mean, I like him. He's a stud. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk more about Roger Deakins, the cinematographer for this movie and why he makes it so great. But I just think that it's so wild that he can do a movie... He can do anything. I mean, this is a sci-fi movie. I wouldn't always expect that from Deacons, but he can he can shoot. He he shot multiple sci-fi films and made them look fantastic. And he can shoot in all kinds of different styles. He can shoot on film. He can shoot digital. He's he's just very talented. And the career he's had, like going back to the '60s, to adapt in so many ways and to do all kinds of different genres of movies, I feel like is a really a credit to his name. Definitely. All right, let's dive into the movie here and then we'll go over the ratings creators and all of that so first off the movie summary in the year 2049 k is a law enforcement officer tasked with hunting down and eliminating replicants from the nexus 8 model his position is known simply as blade runner however K is hunting down his own kind because he is a newer model more obedient model of replicant the latest case K has been working on unveil unrails unveils <laughs> unveils a mystery leading him to believe replicants can reproduce and he may even be the firstborn replicant. His search for answers takes him across the environmental wasteland of Los Angeles to meet and fight all manner of people. Will he solve the mystery or the will the Wallace Cop Quop cooperation? <laughs> Corporation's newest model of use him to get the truth. (laughs) The question we've all been waiting for. Will the cooperation get to it? Hey, look. If the movie isn't going to entertain you, we are. Oh, all right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) For sure. No, I I think that's an excellent uh, description of the story plot. Um, The... The movie has it can be hard to follow, so it's definitely hard to condense it. I think into like a couple sentences. Yeah, definitely. Um, this movie came out in 2017, rated R, two hours and 44 minutes long. Did it feel that long to you? It felt that long to me. I don't think it felt two hours and 44 minutes long because that is, I mean, three hours is a long movie. Yeah. It think, didn't feel. Sh- it didn't feel like super quick. Yeah, I, I cut it into two days, so like. Uh, I don't know. I didn't have to sit there for three hours straight to watch it, but it felt. If I was watching it in one sitting, I feel like I would feel the length of the it's movie. It's just the. To me, it's the stints of the movie is where the, the movie will like sprint and then it kind of does like an interval and like cuts back. And there, there's a specific part I remember where he is at kind of that. I don't know, industrial orphanage place. And he is going to grab the, the toy, the little wooden carved horse. And I was like, this is taking forever. Like just reach out and grab it. Like he's, there's like a minute and a You're half a machine that doesn't have emotion. <laughs> just pick it up, man. But that, I remember that stretch, like just him, like kneeling down, opening the grate, dusting it off. It, 
it didn't it, need to be that long. It kind of reminds me of Avatar Way of Water, where they have like a five minute cut scene of them just swimming to the next spot, you know, just basically just showing off how good their VFX are. And this, I think, is just showing off how good the cinematography is, you know, like, yeah, I just I can like the cinematography of different points of this movie is like a painting or like a beautiful photograph at any point. Um, and it's just not to me like I get bored of it quicker than watching them swim in Avatar 2 where right. I feel like it's just more dynamic colorful yeah. and it's it's like exciting as opposed to watching him kneel down and pick something up they're making it more interesting with the cinematography but it's hey at the end of the day it's still a guy <laughs> picking something up yeah uh, IMDB has a an 8 out of 10 um, which kind of felt kind of high to me um, but then Rotten Tomatoes had it at 88%, and then the audience score at 82 So overall, a very well-received movie, which kind of surprises me more, like how little I've actually heard of this movie, you know, of, of people giving praise to this movie outside of how visually stunning it was. Yeah, I mean, I was, I thought that... Are the visuals just carrying this movie? I mean, I do think that the action, when the action hits, is very strong. I think the performances are very good. I mean, the it, yes, it's probably like the visuals is like Atlas yeah. holding the movie up for you to see everything else. But I do think that there's a lot of other strong qualities to the movie. I mean, the, the story, I would probably give a lower score than a lot of the other aspects. But... It's still it's still an interesting story when you like peel back the layers. Yeah, it's just harder to follow sometimes, so you can't necessarily get that the the beauty of the story on the surface. Um, something interesting that came up when we were talking, and something very apparent, very obvious, when we were talking about this topic before we started recording, we mentioned how big of a difference it is from the first movie to the second movie in terms of how much time it took for this movie to actually be made. The first one came out in 1982, so 35 years later, and it still has, like you said, the main character in the sequel played by the same actor, Harrison Ford. Um, can you think of other sequels that have uh, aired that far after its first one? The the first thing that comes to mind for me is Top Gun Maverick. Um, I, I, the time difference might not be quite so severe. Let's see. I, I think it's fairly close, but Tom Cruise to come back and in this case... Tom 86 Cru to 2022. Yeah, so 14 plus 22. It's like 36 years or something like mm -hmm. that. So and him, beats him, it by a year. For him to come back yeah. and still star, still have six-pack abs, still be a stud. <laughs> I mean... He has a more prominent role. He's still the main character of the movie, as opposed to Harrison Ford as a supporting role. So, very impressive. And then there's, I think there's a couple other movies that do it. I mean, the stars of the original Jurassic Park come back for the third Jurassic World movie. You yeah. know, decades departed from that movie. Um, the first one was also rated R, one hour and fifty-seven minutes long. And boy, did I feel that length. And that was only. <laughs> two hours um, but that one had a better rating on imdb of an 8.1 out of 10 so yeah i mean barely yeah <laughs> i mean still it's recognizable it's 0.1 it's not right. easy to earn on imdb yeah. but i think that i was kind of surprised a win baby i was kind of surprised in the opposite direction of you thinking that an 8.0 was lower than i expected not because i necessarily would have given it like a nine but because i feel like the film community like the niche group of like heavy lovers of film have like a lot of respect for this movie yeah um 
You want to get into our ratings? Yeah, let's do it. I've honestly, I we talked about it right before this started, and then I forgot to do it, so I've been doing it while we've been talking for the last two minutes. <laughs> oh, snap. Okay, do you want me to go first then? Yeah, Give me ahead. some time. Yeah, give me some time to do this addition here. All right, so for our rating, we break it down into six categories. The first category we have is story. So I gave this a six out of 10. Then the next category we have acting. I gave it an eight out of 10. Cinematography, I give it a 10 out of 10. Um, Valid. I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't like giving 10s out of 10s because I feel like it's impossible to achieve the best ever possible, you know? Yeah, well, what I... But, like, I feel like if anything's deserving, this is. So, to give a sneak peek at my list, I also gave it a 10 out of 10. But I feel like what, the, what a 10 out of 10 means to me is, like, that is the gold standard. And when I give another thing like a six or a seven it's like okay it's a six or seven because it's not as good as this this. yeah and i feel like this movie hits that mark yeah um sound design is our next category i gave it a seven out of ten i enjoyed the sound design but it's it's kind of just the whole time although it's so cool though like it's a kind of a similar thing that i said about all quiet on the western front is like it's simplistic but it cuts through you yeah like it's visceral you feel it yeah so i feel like a seven to me a seven and eight is like a good score you know that's an excellent score yeah and then anything lower than that is like yeah. You know, but see, you say right now a seven or eight's a good score, but then when I rank a movie and it comes out to be a seven or eight, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so low. Well, because like we're, ta- we're talking about <laughs> when we rate my favorite movies of all time, they're not just excellent. Yeah, right? I they're you, what I, I consider you. near perfect. These next two categories were out of five. We have set and character design. I gave a four out of five. I mean, it, it just all looked visually uh, pleasing. Uh, every character was wearing something different and and how they kept it all like analog and stuff like they were talking about how the creators were talking about how like they're stuck kind of in the 80s like there's no uh, Steve Jobs like the iPhone never came out there's not like touch screens and stuff so like I, I just thought that was like a really cool detail um, so I gave it a 4 out of 5 and then rewatchability I gave it a 1.5 out of 5 and the reason is because of the, the story just didn't like I didn't get encapsulated in the story you know I got encapsulated in with how everything looked so for me I'm probably not gonna rewatch this again if anything I'll watch clips from it again just to like look at the visuals but maybe not the entire movie again so that brings me to a score of 7.3 out of 10 our ratings aren't altogether wholly different, but I definitely enjoyed the movie more than you, and I feel like that's reflected fairly in my ratings. So for story, I gave it a 7 out of 10, whereas mm-hmm. I believe you gave it a 6. Um, for acting, I gave it an 8 out of 10, which I believe you gave it a 7 or 8. Gave it 8. So yeah, we, we matched up for acting and cinematography as well, where I also gave it a 10 out of 10. Sound design, I gave it 7.5 out of 10. Okay, uh, so just, just a slightly higher than you, yeah. Um, so the same reasons, I feel like that it's simplistic but it's it's like very eerie like the whole movie is eerie and so the it's still very touch on that in the sound yeah and then for uh set and character design i gave it a four out of five uh as well i love 
the costuming. I mean, Kay's outfit I think looks so great. I like his coat. I want his coat. It's like simplistic, but I also live in like Florida. But I want it. It's it's pimping, yeah. but it's also very understated and simple. Right. At the same time, I don't. They pulled it off. Um, all their outfits are great. The futuristic looks. Um, I like Ana Darmus's outfit when she's uh, the giant hologram. Not wearing any clothes. <laughs> This guy. Um, uh, rewatchability, uh, I gave it a three out of five. Okay, which that's fair. I mean, so. you always say how many times would somebody ask if somebody asked you at five times how many times you watch it? I would say maybe two point five at the lowest, but I'm saying around three. I I've only seen this movie twice in my lifetime, but I really enjoyed watching it visually. Like we said, like the visuals really put the whole movie on its back and. Even though there's some parts where I feel like it, it, the story lags, um, I just I like looking at it. Like it's yeah. it's beautiful to look yeah. at. Um, budget for this movie was 150 million, and the box office brought in 267 million. So they did not double, um, which I don't think is necessary. But I feel like it's a little lower than I was expecting it to be. Well, especially being like a franchise movie, they were counting on having an established fan base. Right. So I think they they probably expected more producers. Yeah. Um, okay. That brings us to the creators, the actors. Like, who made this movie? This is where we talk about who's in front of and behind the camera. we got to start with the... I would argue most important person on set, the director. Uh, that is Denis Villeneuve. And... Yes, his name is pronounced Denis. <laughs> I may have been part of the camp that once thought it was Dennis, but... Uh, it says Dennis right there. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> it's spelled Dennis. Um, but he's uh, one of our favorite movies, Prisoners, that we've done an episode on before. Go back and check that one out. Uh, he also directs Dune, Sicario, and Enemy. Uh, he's also directed Arrival. He's big in sci-fi movies now, obviously, with Dune, Arrival, and Blade Runner, making up a, some of the biggest sci-fi movies in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, and he's stunning with visuals. He's a great director. I think he's French, I believe, and originally, before some of these bigger movies, directed some European films. The cinematographer who has worked with Denis a few times and was work collaborating with him on this film was Roger Deakins. Uh, we already touched on him, so I don't really need to sing his praises. It's one of the best in the industry. He did cinematography for Prisoners, Skyfall, 1917, Sicario, and then, you know, just casually some of the most visually stunning and most recognized movies of all time, Big Lebowski and Shawshank Redemption, as well as a ton of others that I won't waste your time getting into. Yeah, no big deal. The music uh, was done by Benjamin Walfish and Han. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> They 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 laid back, collected a check, and hit one one key on the on the piano. Uh, but also by Hans Zimmer, who we obviously respect, who doesn't need any other credits other than the fact that he did music for the Dark Knight trilogy. Although he has the credits, doesn't need them. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about who's in front of the camera. We've got an incredible cast. Um, again, I could go on and on, but let's just stick to uh, what's most important here. And that's with Ryan Gosling playing Kay, otherwise known as Joe. Uh, Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, uh, reprising his role from the first Blade Runner. Anda Armas as Joy, the love interest of Ryan Gosling. And a super complex relationship in this story that I want us to talk about because one is a replicant and one is artificial uh, AI. And then uh, Sylvia Hoax is love. Uh, Jared Leto is Neander Wallace. And Carla Jury is Dr. Anna Staline. So 
who now let's touch on performances here if you want to give that a beat um what were you impressed with what did you notice was there anything that stood out to you in a good or bad way from the people we just mentioned um i really like ryan gosling as an actor he's one of my favorites uh we we debated putting him in our uh, combined top five list you know like he was just outside the cut this is a good that. top 10 for actors yeah. for sure um so i think for me he kind of carried the movie like i was interested in the story as much as i was because of him and now i can see the argument of like oh he was very one-dimensional in this movie but i think it goes a little bit deeper than that because he's playing a character that is very uh one-dimensional in terms of like emotion very stoic and he gives a very stoic performance uh but underneath that i feel like you can see in his performance that he's kind of debating with himself you know that there's some internal conflict going back and forth especially because he thinks that like he might be the first born replicant you know that's never happened before Mm -hmm. and that's taking an emotional toll on him when he's not supposed to have emotions and i feel like i can see that through his performance mainly like when he does let out a little bit of that emotion like when he finds out that his memory is real and he's like god damn it you know like throws a fit like real quick you know but it's it's like he draws himself back it's a burst but yeah but then he he gathers himself quickly um so i would say ryan gosling was my favorite uh, performance in the movie i think that um you touched on a lot of really cool things with his performance in this movie which is i think one of the big things when people think i could be an actor um is they don't think about this kind of performance which is loads harder i mean you or I have talked about acting and it's like, yeah, we could go on stage and, and we could, Oh, I'm so angry at you or like display an emotion. But, um, who, who talks about this? Um, it's Brian Cranston who I love. Yes. I love Brian Cranston. The he subtleties. Ta- yeah. He yeah. talks about, um, it's if, if you cry on screen, that's one thing, but the thing that makes the audience want to cry is when you, basically have tears behind your eyes when you're when you're holding yourself back from crying and whether that bursts over or not like the the emotions that we hold back are a lot harder to portray the emotions that we put forward and i think that's the difficulty that can be lost in his performance is like you're feeling what he's feeling but he's showing that he's hiding it so you you definitely still take from that like when sapper talks to him about hunting his own kind and oh your model is okay with shoveling the shit for humanity being a slave like you see that he's indignant that he takes offense to that 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 makes him emotional but like at a first glance his face is just nothing (laughs) but you you feel that coming off of him and i think that is what people don't consider like oh i could be an actor portraying that and making it the audience feel it is so much harder than I think people realize. Yes. Also what I think is harder than what people realize is how long your days are and how many times you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Setting up for a whole scene to do like a smirk and like an extreme close up, yeah. and then like having to do all the acting. I was watching again. a behind the scenes thing and it was this lady like going around getting toward the place or whatever and they're like, what are you working on today? And they're like, well, we're doing close up shots in the spinner. And so that's like his- The spinner's his, the car, by his the way. car, right. Which I didn't know that was the name of it until I watched this behind the scenes <laughs> thing. <laughs> but. It was like, well, that's what they're doing all day is just getting close-ups for this one scene, like all day. Like, that's it? Like, 
don't you have a full yeah. scene to shoot? You know, like, uh, and then you just have to imagine the complexities of a major scene, something like where you have six people sitting around a table capturing a conversation, yeah. just a conversation, not even like a fight or something like right. that. And Roger Deakins talks about not being lazy with the camera and that he likes to kind of have, use prime lenses, which a prime lens just means that it has one focal length. So like 35 millimeters and that's it. It can't zoom in, can't zoom out. And he was talking about how he doesn't like to be lazy with the camera where he likes to move in on the person to get that tighter shot rather than staying back and just having a uh, zoom lens to yeah. get that shot. So that means they have to do the wide shot, cut, zoom in or push the camera in to do the the tight shot and to move the camera is not as simply as like hey like let's move it over here you know like they're big heavy machines you know and then you have to adjust the lights a little bit adjust the people a little bit like there's a lot that goes into just one scene of a movie and like you said you have to perform on your best over All and over day long for the same thing over and over and over again sometimes giving a lot of energy like an emotion like the um the crying scenes in the shining or ellie in the last of us we just talked about screaming like she probably had to do that a couple times to get the right take and the cuts right. that they wanted and you're giving all this energy <laughs> again and again i mean it's it's not easy right but i think roger deacon's doing that adds to why the film feels um it it as Harry Styles would say, makes it feel like a movie. Um, <laughs> it, it draws you into it. Excuse me, Siri. Check it out. Um, but it, it draws you in. <laughs> Don't spit your water on your computer. But it makes you feel enveloped in it because there's not all these things that make you feel the presence of the camera. It's just you're in the world because he's moving the camera forward. He's not zooming. You don't feel the you know change in the amount of pixels per square inch. You don't feel the zoom. You just are in the movie when he's right. filming. Yeah, it it's super cool. Um, who stood out to you? Um, I would definitely have to say the dynamic, in my opinion, between Ryan Gosling and Ana de Armas. So, and this it's was, interesting, right? Yeah, it's the the idea of the concept of the relationship alone is interesting, and when. You put them on screen together, I think they do a really phenomenal job. I mean, like we talked about, there's Ryan Gosling, this character who's not supposed to feel emotions. He's supposed to be the Nexus 9 model, the obedient, the controlled, reserved. But you get the feeling that he has real emotional connection to Joy. And like he's sad when she's sad and he's happy when she's happy, like you are with a real loved one, like to give her the gift of bringing her onto the roof. And he says to her, let's just say it's our anniversary. And she's like, is it? And he's like, let's just say it is. Like, he wants to do a kindness with her. He gets this bonus for the job of killing a retiring sapper. Which, for someone who doesn't have emotions, he seems pretty lonely. Yeah, right? And that's, like, I feel like kind of the plight of their species is, like, the lack of ability to connect. we got to talk about the greater themes of this movie at some point because it's crazy, the depth and complexity of, you know, for not being as popular as Star Wars like we talked about, the the you know, universal nature and depth and complexity of these themes is like insane. It's very emotional. It is a very interesting dynamic. And I feel like the more we're talking about it, the more I like the movie, you know, like the yeah. more I'm getting excited about it. Like I told my wife last night when I was doing research for the movie and I just got done watching the movie a few days ago, but I was doing research last night for the movie, looking at behind the scenes videos and stuff. And 
it was just fascinating, you know, like listening to Roger Deakins talk and and look, listening to the interviews of the different uh, actors and stuff, like talk about how they're doing their role and stuff. I was like getting excited, you know, to see how they were setting up the set, how they were putting the lights and stuff. I was like, this is awesome. And I told her, I told my wife, I was like, this is weird because I'm having more fun watching this behind the scenes <laughs> stuff than I was like actually watching the movie. I think the aspect of that is that this is a movie made by people who clearly love movies for people who, who love movies. Yeah. So like the filmmaking aspect to it definitely has like a special like twinkle to it yeah. as compared maybe to the story of the movie. It's giving me a different type of enjoyment or a different type of... Um, Appreciation, Yeah, then like another, or entertainment, that's the word yeah. I was looking for, a different form of entertainment than maybe like a Marvel movie would, or or uh, even like Top Gun Maverick, or Avatar Way of Water, or something, you know, like I feel like I'm getting the, the enjoyment of it from talking about it, yeah. more so than I was watching it, which is different. I think it's a movie that feels like a cinematic experience, and so it kind of pains me that I didn't watch it in theaters when it came out. I wish I could see this movie in theaters. I was saying the same thing when I was watching I was like, man, like, this would look awesome on a big screen. Like, And that would probably impact how much we would like the movie, yeah. you know? It's crazy um, all the different factors that could change. Yeah. You I, know? As we're talking about it, I'm just getting hyped up. I'm like, man, I should have given it a higher rating. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't. Like, it's, the rating was right. Stone. It's yeah, stone. that's right. <laughs> now, that, and that's why the ratings, we have the system to account for our biases. Exactly. Exactly. But I think that that relationship, we could talk about a whole podcast for that relationship because it's... She seems to have this hurt with her artificial intelligence. She seems to have real emotions where she really cares about him. The last thing that Joy says in the world before she's crushed and dies is, I love you. She's trying to tell him that she loves him. She's trying to like comfort him because he's clearly afraid for her. And the fear for her and the love he feels for her seems so real, but hidden behind the fact that he's not supposed to experience those things. It's a really complex relationship between two non-humans. Yeah. Um, that was my favorite thing about the movie, walking away from my first viewing, was that relationship. And at the time, it was my favorite performance um, by Ana Darmus because I had yet to see Knives Out. Yes. Um, okay. Do you want to kind of go into the mystery of this movie that we talked about in the summary or do you kind of want to go into more like behind the scenes stuff or maybe even our backseat directing stuff like where do you want to go from here for this he flipped the coin all right so we're going to go into the story all right and we're going to cover the story plot through this investigation that Kay is going through so it starts out with Kay. the beginning of the movie Kay arrives at sapper's house and sapper is we come to find out this uh, Nexus 8 model, um, and whereas K is a Nexus 9. So this older model that they were given uh, longer lifespans, they cut off those lifespans because they realized that replicants could develop emotions. So someone like K, Nexus 9, has a shorter lifespan to kind of account for that and keep them in their slave role instead didn't, of um, evolving. The first generation or whatever that we saw in the first one, didn't they have a four-year lifespan? Am I making that up? Oh, maybe that is for the Nexus 8. Well, the no, the Nexus 8 would have been the most recent model, so that would have been what Rachel was. And I think Rachel was created with a longer lifespan. Okay. But the 
the antagonist in the first one was four years, right? Yeah, that was the whole plot point of that movie. Gotcha. I haven't seen that movie as recently. I did. I, I do remember that though. Yeah. That they, that was part of the kind of did thing they, that they were trying to find out how to break that that mold, right? Right. To get, yeah. They to wanted get to live there, long. Their fate. Exactly. And that's the reason that was created at the time. Yes. Was for, to limit their lifespan. So he was a Nexus Eight. Yeah. I believe. I don't know. Did they talk about him having a lifespan limit? Okay. Yeah. I believe I. I don't think actually. I don't think they did talk about it, but it would have been. I don't been, think so. It would have. I imagine it would have folded over if they had that role for the Nexus Eight. They would have had it for the Nexus Nine. Yeah, interesting. Imagine. I don't know. But so the Nexus Nine is the newer model. He's going. He's a Blade Runner going to retire a Nexus Eight in the form of Sapper, played by Dave Bautista. Um, he gets to his house, confronts him. There's like this epic fight scene. It's kind of small in scale, but I which lo- Sapper is been alive longer than four years right i mean he certainly looks it it seemed like it in terms of like him being on his own with that i feel like the blade runner universe is confusing yes and we'll, we'll talk about this more like in our backseat directing segment I mean, at they, the end they but made dave batista look older which i feel like would have only been done to show that he had been alive for a long time or that the environment that he's living in is very harsh yeah. You know, so like it affects the skin and, you and, know, they're just. And from my understanding, the Nexus 7 model was made without the superhuman strength. So then the villains of the first movie could not have been Nexus 7 models. So they must have been 8s, but we know they had a lifespan limitation. And and then Sapper couldn't have been a Nexus 9 because Joe says, like, they, they, they talk about the difference between them being different models. Right. Joe says, like, my kind doesn't run. Yeah. Like, we're obedient, basically. I'm a nine, you're not. So he couldn't have been a seven, he must have been an eight. But then there's... Yeah, I, don't know. I don't understand why... I'm the, getting more confused. Uh, every, <laughs> yeah. He, All right. There's a lot of questions that are popping up right now. <laughs> if anyone can answer that for us in our comics, comments, who, where the lifespan limitation comes into play, who has it, who doesn't. Yeah. That would help. That'd be... Yes. Because um, I just read online that Nexus 7s did not have the enhanced strength that the villain of the first movie did have. Gotcha. Um, so that's kind of where the waters are getting confused for me. But don't you love that fight scene between Sapper and, and K? Yeah, uh, it's very minimal, but impactful, like you said. I'm going to try uh, to use K moving forward, because I think it's confusing the way... It, it's they're, K and Joe are the same person, but let's stick with K. Yeah. His, his name is K. His model number. Yeah. Uh, that's what he, like, really goes by. <laughs> but um, isn't it interesting how both movies open with the Blade Runner pushing or throwing or shooting someone through a wall? Yeah. <laughs> they both open the <laughs> same Only in this way. case, they're both replicants, which is... Yeah. I, I think it's so much more entertaining, the opening action in this movie. The shot from the other side of the wall where Sapper is just beating Kay's head into it and the wall is like beveling and beveling. I think it's it looks so cool. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Our uh, on, on air, air sign is <laughs> totally dying. It definitely needs new batteries. It's not even <laughs> illuminated just a anymore. Little flicker. <laughs> Um, but after he kills Sapper, there's some important lines there. Um, there we can touch on the themes here because I think this really kicks off what is in this movie. I want to hear your thoughts on it. So when Kay retires Sapper, Sapper says, Your kind's okay with shoveling the shit for humanity, um, saying, like, 
basically the obedient role that K is accepted into due to his programming, basically, is to be subservient to humanity. And Sapper is more of a revolutionary. Maybe uh, I think he comes from one of those rebellious colonies off-world. Uh, that I think they have a line saying that. So um, the theme of the movie is basically what is the difference? There's a line that later in the movie where uh, Deckard's talking about the dog. And Kay says, is it real? And Deckard says, I don't know, ask him. I mean, are, would a artificial life form that has its own propensity for thought, would the difference matter? Does it matter? So that's like, I think the biggest theme yeah, of this would movie. Yeah, they think they're not yeah. real? What's Does the Kay think yeah. he's not real? Exactly. I mean, he has. I, you you have to assume to accept your existence. You consider yourself real. They're the the difference, I guess, for them is between biological. Yeah, is that biological? Yeah. yeah. Are you are you between? Uh, are you a human or a replicant? Is kind of the difference. So, but again, what's the difference? I mean, physically, the replicants are the same to human in pretty much every way, except for their enhanced strength and durability. They're stronger. They're like the next evolution of humankind, but they have their own propensity for thought and clearly their own propensity for emotion and love. The only thing that they're lacking, which is what this movie touches on, is procreation. And they are created rather than born. But they still have sex. Yes. Strange that why did they make them with sex organs if they didn't want them to reproduce? Why did they make them with the desire yeah. to have sex? Just program that out. Also, Rachel clearly has a uterus, which is like, why did you give her that if the Wallace Corporation or the Terrell Corporation didn't well, want Andrew, to? They're using the body of a human as a model, so like, how yeah. do you get rid of that? That's everyone's like favorite part. We're creating, <laughs> we're creating a human yeah. with all this technology. How do we? We can't <laughs> leave out the tits. Okay, we can't. <laughs> We just, we just have to keep them. You know, we have no other option. All right. I mean, I want to I wanna be able to look at my robots. That's right. What, what am I, abstinent? <laughs> but so my question for you, I guess, is what is the difference? Do you feel there's a difference between replicants and humans? Or are they, is, is the difference just in being created versus being born? It feels like that's the only difference. And this is kind of like jumping into our backseat directing segment, at least for me, where it's like, I don't know if it's the movie or if it's me, but the story is a little bit hard to follow, which we've already kind of touched on. And I think the reason it's hard to follow is the execution of the world building. You know, there's a lot of questions that aren't really answered or touched upon and even like simple questions that you can find the answer to just by like watching some behind the scenes stuff. And it seems like all the creators know, but it seems like they didn't deliver that to the audience within the movie very well. And if they did, I missed it. It went over my head. Um, but this is kind of one of those things. It's like, what's the difference? Yeah. Why are the replicants so human esque? you know, yeah. like why, are they not a little bit different? I think that you know? I think that they played. I feel like it was like a budget thing. I, I think they part in the, yeah, <laughs> you know, in the original like, movie. Right, I have this sci-fi movie idea. We're gonna have robots and all this, and then the the studio was like, "Hey, like we don't have money for robots. What if they looked like?" <laughs> Human. <laughs> well, I think that he, my interpretation of it is that they kind of prioritize themes over 
sense. Like the, I think the the biggest theme of the movie is that question: that what's the difference? Is that essentially um, what makes a human is our feelings and perception of the world, and is what you perceive to be real any different than what is actually real? In a way, no. So I think that they prioritize that theme, but then you have to ask the logical question of if the Terrell Corporation wanted them to be robots and wanted them to be slaves, why on earth did they make them this way? Yeah. Why would you make them look exactly like humans if you in have every the way? ability to literally recreate a human and program it, why would you program anything that you don't want it to do? Like, why would you make it so good that it's like better than you? Especially if you just wanted them as a slave force. I feel like the movie never really touches on the reason for including artificial intelligence in the robots. Like, why do they, it never really says like, oh, they were designed to move, like you move a box from here to here, and then they evolved to experience love. And I mean, you don't even have to put artificial intelligence in something to move a box from here to here. Just tell it, move a box. Yeah. You know? And so I don't really, I I guess I, I see what they're going for, which is like this bigger theme of the science fiction realm of like, what makes life? These people are playing God is create, is, Terrell and Wallace creating them any different than say uh, intelligent designer creator creating humans like are we created are they human that is like the questions the movie asks they're like yeah it's it seems like they're definitely living organisms right like there's no like hey I gotta plug this into the back of their head to like update their system or change a rule or something yeah. they, uh, they, they bleed they have sex they love they dream they emote like they get yeah. angry they get sad they're just humans and while we're talking about the difference between them let's talk about the the void comp test which is like in this world the a test that they can use to discern whether something is uh, a replicant or a human. And the test is like so advanced that you can't even tell what's going on in the first Blade Runner when they're doing it. It's like they're asking them questions like measuring their pupillary response, like looking at their heartbeat, their blood pressure, all this stuff I assume. But it's they also the, don't explain that device yeah. very well. I kind of like that they leave it open-ended. It's like the force. Yeah. It's kind of better left unexplained. But it's yeah. based on the Turing test, which is a, um, a test designed by Alan Turing in the 1950s. Uh, it was originally called The Imitation Game, which there's a movie kind of about this. Uh, it doesn't really touch on the Turing test, but um, there's a movie based on Alan Turing with, Al- with Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, the Turing test is meant to discern if... He, a machine has artificial intelligence what you do is you have one human that you have two humans that you can't see and a judge trying to discern which one of them is getting their responses from a computer so they'll ask them both a question and if the judge can't tell which one of them is getting their responses to the questions from a computer then that computer has passed the turing test and has successfully imitated a human human-like responses um a great movie for this again another recommendation is ex machina which is all about artificial intelligence and the turing test and the complexities therein but this inspiration is for the void comp test which in a way feels like an inspiration for the entire plot of the blade runner movies um the 
Blade Runner series is actually based on uh, a novel, uh, a novel from 1968 called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's by Philip K. Dick. Um, in that story, the main character, again, is named Rick Deckard, but unlike in the movie, he is simply retiring replicants in order to get money so he can save up to replace his uh, android sheep with a real sheep. <laughs> but along the way, he falls in love with one of these replicants and um, kind of learns about the blurred lines between being human and inhuman. Um, so again, we like circle back from the beginning of that plot summary of the novel to the end where the themes again connect with the movies and they just ignore the sheep. <laughs> but I mean, do you think that there's a blurred nature between humanity? Like, do you, do you think it's, uh, there's a strict line that you would draw in the sand for what makes something human? In this movie or in, in general in general i mean biologically yes but then like if something is alive and has consciousness you know like that's a little bit different yeah so i i guess the question is for me the question to you less so biologically and more so like in a in a ethereal sense what makes something let's not say human let's say alive yeah that's an interesting question you know and i think that's kind of like you said like what they're exploring in this movie um and i think the replicants are definitely alive and living their own life even if they are programmed it doesn't seem like their program is very strong yeah you know maybe it is for a little bit but then i don't know in every case we've seen that that hasn't followed what it's supposed to do right like how many examples within the movie have we seen that they've actually been programmed to do what they were supposed to maybe just love right yeah basically the, the uh, but even she seems to have her own motivations like she's she seems to want to be the best yeah like she's still driven i think emotionally that's where i kind of think i draw the line between man and machine as less so in the line of creating your own original thoughts and more so on the line of emotion because machines kind of think and you know, like your laptop kind of thinks but it's just a simple if then if aaron presses this then i do this mm -hmm. now branching out from that just to basically like a tree of options i feel like is not that big of a leap but actually feeling emotions is like way on the other end of the field you know feeling emotions is so complex and even the simple yeah we don't even understand them as humans <laughs> you know yeah, for like, real <laughs> like, we don't understand our own brains at all yeah we we don't even know how to express our feelings at some time at some points you know like let alone a, a machine being able to do that but the replicants in these stories all have that same struggle the, right. the human struggle of their struggling with their emotions and not knowing how to portray them or interpret them exactly all right where where do we go from here in that this mystery okay so he retires sapper and then Kay finds an abnormality in the ground it's this box um that turns out to be the bones of rachel from the first movie now uh through the course of the investigation, they find out that um, evidence on this bone shows it was a replicant with a serial number on the bones, but also that it has shown signs of giving birth. So uh, Kay follows that lead to the Wallace Corporation, uh, where we meet Jared Leto's character, Neander Wallace, where we meet Love, this new highly advanced Nexus model. Um, They're all new. Everyone's new and advanced. better. Yeah. <laughs> you laughing at that. 
Um, but he goes through their records. Uh, that's a this movie has like some subtle hints of humor when he's being led around by the guy who with uh, no hair. He's like, they, we lost all my baby photos in case, like, it's a shame. You must have been, you must have been a beautiful, beautiful. baby. It's, it's like, that, that is very, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's just I like a quick line. Too, yeah. But so he finds here a clue um, that when he takes it back and interprets the DNA at the LEPD office, that there was a, a male and female child born. It shows him here that the female child dies, which we know later to be a cover. Um, he follows the the male child's kind of records to lead him to Mr. Cotton, um, where it's at this industrial orphanage that we kind of talked about earlier. Um, but in Mr. Cotton's records, the pages have been ripped out where he would have found details about this child. Maybe done by Fresa, who we meet later in the movies, trying to trying to help hide the child, hide the records. Fresa's trying to lead the uh, rebellion of the androids, so maybe that was done by her. Um, but despite the fact that that leads kind of a dead end, he follows his own memories to find this little wooden toy horse that was in. Before we continue, why are the replicants having a problem overthrowing the humans like this rebellion? Like they're much stronger and arguably smarter. I think the first movie says that they there was an android rebellion like massacre. And so they only started putting them on the off-world colonies. So there's probably not a lot of androids on Earth. But then Seems I mean, you, like a you lot, see right? quite a bit of them. Maybe that's changed since the Wallace Corporation. Not, I mean, now that Wallace has bought out Terrell, maybe he's... Because he seems to be in love with the idea of creating an endless army of, of replicants. So maybe he's created more and now there's more on Earth. Um, and he wants them to reproduce? He wants them to reproduce. That's yeah. his his and love's end goal. Because yeah. um, that's the fastest way he Is can think he of to replicant? create. Um, Wallace, I would say no. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if because I think if you have a replicant creating replicants, then that kind of answers one of the why can't questions. the replicants create a replicant anyways? I mean, I I think that that would kind of if humans can. I mean, I'm sure because they they say in the opening text crawl of the first movie that the replicants are at least as intelligent as their creators, if not more. I believe is what the opening text crawl says. So theoretically, they should be able to, but like the propensity of thought to be able to do it and then to like go and do it. There's like that scene in iRobot where he's like, "Robots creating robots. That's exactly what we need." <laughs> and if they could do that, then yeah. Hell yeah, they should be able to overtake the human race if they can just create more of themselves. And that's the same. It's kind of strange that Neander has kind of this um, bravado, I guess you'd say, that he. I think he definitely sees himself as God because he creates life, toys with life. That super creepy scene where he um, creates that new model and then cuts her stomach open and then kisses her on the lips and which I, I don't know why he does that it's close, yeah, it was unnecessary it seems like maybe and the fact that it was Gerald <laughs> doing it too just it made me uncomfortable man I think that maybe the reason that he kissed her like that is because it's like a form of dominance to him yeah. and he treats them like playthings he's like I created you I could do what I want with you I could kill you I can kiss you and he does both in the one scene so I think he kind of plays God and I think that bravado is why he wants to unlock the secret to them replicating <laughs> replicants replicating uh, because he doesn't see a rebellion he sees like he's like I am God you what are you guys gonna 
rebel against me. I am your creator. Like, I, I think that's maybe why he doesn't see the flaw in his plan. Because Joshi, the lieutenant, like, wants... What's his motivation? To take over the world? Oh, I think his motivation is just to have this, like, ultimate workforce. Like, to have this... He says that... There's a line in the movie where he says that um, all the greatest achievements in human history were built off of, like, a slave force. So I think he sees himself as, like, the ultimate human achiever if he creates the ultimate slave force. He's like, we can accomplish anything. We can colonize all these off-world planets. We can create all these giant structures. We'll, net, we'll be unstoppable. So I, I think, guess that's the part that I'm missing, is that, like, they didn't explain what his end goal is here. Other than to make other, a replicant that reproduces. But, like, why? Well, the if reason, he can make them himself. He said it's the fastest way to produce, like... The, the force that he wants like like I guess it's it's cheaper and faster that way right yeah. like he doesn't have to make them um, if they're just like all go off you know the way like we just gotta assume that he's like trying to take over the world right I don't assume he's trying to take over the world I assume it's based on like ego and accomplishment you know I assume it's based on that God complex like he wants to be God he wants to create life I mean creating life that can create life is more God like he's basically creating uh, a machine but if he creates something that can create life on its own, that brings him closer to being God. Sure. Oh, I, I feel like yeah. the the ultimate way to to be to review movies and films is just to draw everything back to biblical parallels. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. It's like, do I sound smart if I if I say that he wants to be God? Yeah. Uh, but I I do think that that's genuinely genuinely what this movie is going for. Okay. Um, and I think it looks great. <laughs> I feel like now you're liking it less as we talk about it more. Yeah, we should go back to like the uh, creation of the actual movie and not the story. Um, but I, I think that definitely, I think Neander Wallace is an interesting character. I mean, they, they give you less, but you can draw still your own conclusions from it. Um, also, there's a bunch of other biblical parallels in the movie too. So um, Wallace, said, Wallace calls love and angel um he talks about storming eden in reference to the garden of eden um and when love first approaches him he says um it's like something like it's not polite to enter the kingdom of heaven without a gift um so the i definitely think that's a parallel that they're trying to draw yeah very on the nose he for just sure. wants to be godlike i think that's his motivation for what he's doing yeah. but it's weird because if the Joshi rec recognizes the opposite perspective. She's trying to basically cover up this uh, truth that androids can reproduce. She wants Kay to find the child and retire it, kill it, because she recognizes that she rec she's on the ground level. She's not on high on this pillar that uh, Neander's on. Joshi is you know she's been a detective she's a, a lieutenant in the lapd she recognizes that if replicants see their own propensity to reproduce they're going to ask themselves the big question what's the difference and they're going to rise up and revolt and be be more want to be more than slaves because nobody wants to be a slave and if they see that they can reproduce this movie's drawing the line that the only difference between replicants and humans is replicants are created and here <laughs> which humans in a way are created, but re replicants are built, I guess I would say, rather than uh, being created through procreation. 
built or grown. I don't really know how they make them. Who knows? She just fell out of that sleeve. (laughs) (laughs) But humans are grown too. I mean, she basically fell out of a... Uh, yeah, we a uterus it. with an yeah. amniotic fluid all over her. Like she, yeah, it was gross. <laughs> <laughs> she was gooey. <laughs> but I, I definitely think that um, we should move forward with the investigation <laughs> that we've been going through very slow. I agree. Let's move on. So he found this little horse thing. Kay found this little horse thing at the orphanage and it's from his memory. So now he's like, oh no, like my memory is real. What does this mean? Uh, so Joy actually suggests that he goes to the source of the memories and that's when he goes to see Dr. Anastaline. Yeah. And then they find out where that uh, like wooden horse came from and that leads him to Vegas. Where he then meets Rick Deckard, which is Harrison Ford, like we said, reprising his role. At this point, Kay's kind of imagining that Deckard is his father because of the memory being real. Replicants aren't supposed to have memory. They're, they're, I think at one point they, they say they use memories that belong to other people um, or they use fabricated memories, but he's not supposed to have memories of his own, which he has now been convinced that because he has his own memories, that means that he was the replicant who was born and dropped off at this orphanage. And he thinks he's discovering his own story, which would make Deckard his father. And then there's, I, I really like this fight scene when he meets Deckard where they both, where Deckard's trying to kill him and Kay is just trying to, <laughs> he's like, I'm just here to talk basically. Yeah. Just um, taking blow after blow. Yeah. You know, just <laughs> that other scene is great. The way that they, like they use silence effectively, like cutting out when the, the hologram cuts out and so much adds to the impact of the fight scene. Uh, but when things settle down, um, he has conversations with Deckard before uh, Love catches up with him. And Love kind Love from the Wallace Corporation crashes in, takes Deckard, um, seems like maybe mortally wounds Kay, but he lives. Um, he gets the snot beat out of him, though. Um, but she leaves with Deckard because... She also, this is when she killed Joy. Oh, my God. That hit me. That hit me so hard the first time I watched. I was like, Joy's not really dead, is she? Yeah. No. I, you they don't got, have a backup memory card. Come it's, on. <laughs> it's ironic the way that they got me connected to the machine, like loving Joy, similar to how, um, like, she's kind of supposed to be like this uh, this pleasure system for people. Like, she's she's not supposed. To, I don't think she's intended to have the real romantic re- connection that Kay has with her. So. They, they like made me fall in love with this piece of technology in the same way that Kay kind of wasn't supposed to. Yeah. But um, they leave. They take Deckard because Neander and Love are trying to find the answers from Deckard of how he was just part of creating a child, which that leads into another big question from this movie. Is Deckard a replicant or not? Now, the explanation I saw to... To my big question being that how is he a replicant when he's so weak and always getting smacked around by replicants i looked it up and it says that nexus 7 models which would be the theory for what deckard is nexus 7 models did not have that enhanced strength and then you've got the evidence of deckard having uh the dream or uh sharing the memory of the origami unicorn which is something that um, like shared dreams should really only be had by replicants because your original dream should be your own, but they're pi- they're 
stockpiling these memories into um, replicants so then they have shared dreams or memories. Um, now, do you think that this evidence leads to Deckard being a replicant? Do you think it doesn't? I know that I will say that people are going to argue that it doesn't matter, and that's the whole point of it, but it's still fun to wonder. It kind of matters, because then how was that baby made? I think that it definitely matters to that question, because one is saying that the baby is half human, and one is saying that the baby is made between two replicants, which means two replicants can have a child. Yeah. And if two replicants can have a child, why did it only happen in that one case? Because other replicants have had sex, I'm assuming, right? Cause yeah. Well, Rachel was also a newer model of replicant when that happened. Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely up to interpretation. Neither you know, movie like, answers the question fully. No, definitely not. But, I don't know, which interpretation do you like better? Would you like it better if he was a replicant or a human? I don't know. For whatever reason, I always just thought he was a human. Um... So, I don't know. Now you're kind of like messing up my whole world. <laughs> but there, there's these hints, these small hints that he's a replicant. And um, both movies kind of touch on it without, they artfully dance around it without really answering the question. So, go ahead and let us Just know. Just like everything else. Let us know what you think. Is Deckard a human? Is he a replicant? I mean, if he's a replicant, he's kind of a punk-ass replicant because he's always getting smacked around. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. They don't show feats of strength very often. When I love when K goes through the wall. Yeah. When he's chasing after it Deckard. almost, like, unexpected because they show these feats of strength so infrequently that I was like, oh, no, like, he's falling behind. And it's like, oh, snap, he just ran through the wall. You know, like, kind of caught me off guard a little bit. I'm like, whoa, how did he do that? Oh, He's stronger. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Do you remember the punch that Love did to the uh, guy, the um, autopsy guy or whatever, like right oh, behind yeah. his neck? Just like, took him out. Oh, brutal. So, yeah, that was, oh, man, brutal. Guttural. And then um, she also, when she takes Joshi's hand and crushes, crushes. the glass in it and squeezes it, yeah, I'm like, through oh, her hand. writhing yeah. in my seat. Like oh. everything in this movie from like the color palette to the music to like the story and acting just adds to unease. Like I feel yeah. like nervous on the edge of my seat. <laughs> they should have hired you for to do that sound effect. Did Hans call I'm you? Available. <laughs> anyway, what's the, what was the last point we left off in our mystery? So he uh, went to the source of the memories love and then he found, he found captured. Yeah. So love, yep. love captured Deckard. Um, and then, um, okay. He, gets he he ends up with Fresa and the robot rebellion and they kind of put the thought in his head of like we can be more like you we need you to save Deckard because we can't allow them to um solve this mystery and 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 take our lives from us and cement us as slaves in history like we can be more than slaves and this is where like the emotions really breaking through for Kay and like his feelings are shining forward that he doesn't want to accept this life. I mean, I think that this is also where he realizes that he is not the son. Yeah. Right? She tells him that she, she says like a quick line that it was a girl. And he says a girl, yeah. she says, yes, the child was a girl. And that's where he realizes that it couldn't, couldn't possibly have been him. Um, which I think is kind of, again, it's like his, his psyche or his ego or whatever you want to call it has been shattered again and again with this realization that, Oh, I'm, I'm 
the firstborn. Oh, I'm not. Like he's really going through it emotionally in this movie. Um, is it now or later that he realizes that Anastaline is the child? Um, I don't know if he. I think they sh- they show a flashback to her crying about the memory. I think it's right in that scene with Freysa that he recognizes. Yeah. They show a flashback to her saying, like, this memory was lived. And he realizes, oh, it was her memory. Um, mm-hmm. Which then, as we as the audience are like, oh, crap. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Anna Celine is the firstborn. And I think that's part of why she has this kind of uh, immune, def- immune, immune system, deficiency. Yeah. yeah, she's, like, the first of her kind. Not to mention she's living in a world... That isn't exactly friendly to the immune system. I mean, this postmodern wasteland Earth in 2049 uh, is like wrecked. Which, if they can make replicants as like that's definitely the highest form of technology that we've like ever seen, right? They're making humans exactly like humans. Like, why can't they protect the Earth? <laughs> you yeah, know the, what I'm the, saying? The Blade Runner universe has like this weird limitations on what they can do it's like yeah. they can do all this incredible stuff and then the things they can't do like you said like there's no real presence of like uh there's not like a portable phone in any of this is there like he has to sit in his car to talk with Joshi. Yeah, it might it, maybe making replicants just took up too much of their time <laughs> either that or it just produces like this a mass amount of waste you know it's that's the reason destroying why like that. the atmosphere you know because like the world is in today the world's like already like all right guys we really need to like change our ways a little bit yeah. here you know things aren't good but like in that world it's like way beyond and it's like man like how is it to this point when you guys have the technology to literally make humans you know yeah no they i think that that makes a lot of sense that creating them adds to the atmosphere i mean the movie does also say that they the reason for the off-world colonies is because of the pollution Mm -hmm. so like that explains the off-world colonies that we've kind of touched on a little bit here and there um where we leave off with our mystery. So he's <laughs> this, this, we're just, we're just talking about the movie guys. We, we need to get back to, or we still need to get to the point where he goes and saves Decker. Yeah. That's so where we're at. Fraser explained everything to him that we already discussed. And now he's kind of inspired in a way to go and take on this mission where he may not be like the savior. He may not be the firstborn child, the Christ figure of the movie, but he's the hero of the movie. He's the protector. Um, so he, goes on this journey gets in his spinner zips off to go save deckard and that scene is beautiful (laughs) it's so cool the way that they shoot it i mean um talk about what makes a scene cinematic rain (laughs) for sure (laughs) but um and darkness and there's this giant seawall which is called the subovita seawall in the storyline i think it's because the environmental degrade in this postmodern world um the seawall probably exists because of rising sea levels protecting los angeles but that is the location of our final fight scene. The plane crashes, and this is where we get to really see like a full display of the replicant abilities and like a fight between two enhanced individuals. And like, it's awesome. It's super it badass. Really cool. Um, the and there's like so much intensity to the scene. They use they use the utilize the lighting from the spinner to kind of light the scene with that, yeah, that you orange, got the orange and, and blue. blue. Yeah, <laughs> orange and teal. Yeah, and, and then. 
there's the added intensity of like the ship being pulled away, the spinner being pulled away by the rising tide with Deckard still locked into it. So there's like this ticking clock aspect where he could drown, his life's on the line. Um, there's so much intensity to that scene. So at this point, the mystery has finally been solved. <coughs> Basically, Freysa had the answers the whole time. We just didn't know Freysa existed. Um, and like the only thing left is for him to save Deckard, but standing in between him and Deckard is Love, who honestly is the real villain of this movie. She kind of like takes the spotlight from Neander Wallace, mm-hmm. but isn't this scene so phenomenal? Like I feel like the climax of this movie is worth every slow bit. Yeah, it looked really cool, and uh, it was very intense. You know, like when she would she stab. Okay. Yes. Like and then times. swam back out to the ship that Deckard's in as it's like flooding. And then Kay comes up like super fast out of the water and is like holding her up by her neck, choking her. But then he's like barely able to breathe above the water. Like that was really cool. So much is so scene. So like intense. Yeah. Um, but he's basically stopping them right from. They're, they have this method, I guess, that Neander hints at where they're going to force answers out of Deckard, whether it's like technology is going to go into his mind or whatever. Um, what do you think about Love's motivation? Because the scene where uh, Wallace guts that uh, replicant, um, she kind of has that, what we're talking about with Ryan Gosling, where behind her eyes, I feel like she's kind of disgusted um, in a way by this act that he's committing. I don't know if you felt this too, but I felt like she kind of had this grimace, like she was like, her jaw was clenched. And Wallace keeps this, he has these little cameras that are watching everything, these little floating devices. He keeps one point blank staring at Love's face, like he's trying to look for any sign of a reaction in her. And it doesn't leave until he finally walks away and the replicant drops dead. So I think he's kind of testing her with this moment. Um, do you, where do you think her motivations are? What do you think she's feeling in the story? Honestly, I don't know anyone's motivations in this movie, you know? Like, if he's trying to be God, then is she just trying to please him? You know, and be like the the right-hand woman, you know, to, to God? Like, that's got to be really powerful to be the that, like, second angel in line, you know? I think you really touched on it well there because he calls her an angel, and she clearly seems to think of herself as like the newest best most perfect model so i think she wants to be perfect she wants to be like the perfection that wallace is looking for i think Mm -hmm. she strives to like please her creator in that way that's probably that's probably her main motivation throughout i think you hit the nail on the head really well that's what it seems like anyways yeah but did you have i mean we've talked a lot about backseat directing but do you want to encapsulate that real quick with what was good and bad as we come to a close i mean obviously what was good was the cinematography, the lighting, the the set design, um, and then what was confusing is what we've been talking about. Just the the little like questions that the two movies leave up to interpretation. That maybe some of it could have been left up to interpretation, but then some of it I think would have added to the story if they just like told us, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, or showed us in some sort of way. Um, outside of that, like. I don't really have any other backseat directing notes, but it's weird that the world building is something that I feel is lacking, but the sets looked so in depth and cool. Like they the, built a cool the world physically. physical world <laughs> was very developed and looked very unique and like how they were talking about 
in like these behind the scenes uh, clips that I was watching last night, like all of their outfits and stuff were made purely for function of surviving harsh environments. You know, like it all was like kind of stuck in the, the 80s style and the whole purpose was just to survive, you know? So you had like very thick and bulky things, you know, like, and like we were talked about, like all the, the analog stuff, like there was no screens or anything. Like even, um, what's the, the true kid's name that was making all the dreams? Dr. Anastaline. Yeah. So she, her little device was very like analog. It kind of looked like a camera lens almost. And that's what she's using to create that thing these so cool. dreams. Yeah. But like <laughs> typically in a sci-fi movie, it would probably be like a touch screen or like or a like, hologram. That's or what something. I was thinking is a hologram, right? Where she's like, zoom, zoom, zoom. Yeah. yeah. Like, but we, we didn't see that. Like they, they st- stood true to like the the world from the first film into the second and just kind of added to it but even with that it leads to questions of like all right they can literally make humans they can literally make a snake or a dog like like they can do all these things like but all their other technology seems not as advanced but it it's kind of cool at the same time you know yeah um but yeah, what, what about you? Do you have any backseat directing for this movie? The only con I would say to the movie is, like you said, maybe a little bit of additional clarity to kind of balance it out. And then some of the pacing where I feel like the movie could have been sped up in certain parts and definitely didn't need to be two hours and 44 minutes long. Um, but I'll say a lot of good things about the movie. It's, we've said again and again, visually stunning. The acting's great. Um, I think the, the writing is very good, but it has room for improvement. It's kind of touching on our on our con. In our professional opinion. Yeah, you know. We've written better scripts. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> um, but I think that I will definitely praise the movie for the questions that it asks, for the thought-provoking nature of the movie, that question of what makes something human. Ryan Gosling has a line in the movie that says, he says, I'd never killed something that was born before. To be born is to have a soul. And the movie is begging that question. Is that what makes something have a soul? Can a machine have a soul at a certain level of sophistication? Like, what gives humans our soul? What makes us different than a machine? These are some of the biggest questions in all of science fiction, and I think that some science fiction movies kind of gloss over it and are like, oh, cool, lasers. But this movie leans very heavily into the questions and themes, like biblical reflections, biblical themes, literary uh, reflections and themes and questions. And um, it's a very, like I said, thought-provoking movie. So I like to just like think on these questions. Like you could sit around a dinner table and have these conversations with people. Like, what does it mean to be human? Can you be human without being born? Can a machine be sophisticated enough to have a soul have a soul <laughs> like does does sunny in irobot have a soul that's one of my favorite science fiction movies and sunny dreams sunny feels emotional connections i would argue that sunny has a soul he doesn't have skin he doesn't have blood but what does that have to do with having a soul so i i think there are like very interesting questions yeah if anything this movie has definitely sparked a very entertaining conversation you know like i really as a, enjoyed as a good this movie should yeah i really enjoyed this podcast like like i said like researching about this movie and talking about the movie and stuff has been like it equals out the entertainment like i'm having just as much fun with this movie than I would with like other movies that I, maybe I enjoyed the movie more for this other movie, but I'm enjoying talking about this movie a lot. The, you know what I'm thinking as I look over at our Batman poster, uh, before we close, I want to talk about the ending of this movie and then some of the inspirations for this movie. Um, so 
We could talk about this movie a for long, so This is long. a long podcast. We could talk about this movie for a really I think long we're time. at like an hour and 15 minutes or so right now. Something so. like that. Yeah. But anyway, the inspiration, I think a big inspiration for this movie is 2001 A Space Odyssey. The sci-fi themes, the AI themes, and then visually. And then I think this movie, in some ways, definitely inspired the Batman through its lighting and, and use of, you know, darkness and its use of a specific color palette. Um, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, they're very similar in that aspect where they have a style and they definitely embrace that style, you know, like it's it's in your face. It's not super subtle, but at the same time, it like it definitely adds to the world building of the story, you know, and like just encapsulating you in to the environment that you're in. Um, Yeah, I think the Batman's like on the same level in terms of cinematography both 10 out of 10s yeah so my final question to you then a fitting place to end the episode is on the ending of the movie so we haven't talked about it yet but the very end of the movie Kay brings Deckard to meet his daughter because he made that sacrifice like all these years he made that sacrifice he talks about where he says when you love somebody sometimes you got to be a stranger and it's not that he doesn't want to be in his daughter's life but being in her life creates a danger to her so he finally gets to meet his daughter which is incredibly emotional. They meet at the glass. Kay lays down on the stairs. Do you think Kay dies there? I feel like he does not. Um, More so just because of how other movies have kind of played out, you know, where humans have survived the injuries that he has, and he's not a human. He's, I would say, physically above a human. Oh, for sure. And I think he did not die. Um... But it's definitely a possibility that he could have because maybe he just didn't get help in time. You know, like maybe no one knew that he was just laying there dead. But did he have his spinner at that time? Because maybe his little uh, little robot trunk came and found him and was like, oh, no, let me help you. He he should have had the spinner because that's, I believe, how him and Deckard got there. But the reason I ask is because when I was reading kind of on on the wiki for... Blade Runner 2049, the ending of the movie description said that he lays down on the stairs, excuse me, and dies. And I didn't really interpret it that way, so I wasn't surprised to read it that way. I thought that was just kind of him, like, taking the world in, like, taking a, a, he's been through a lot. I thought that was him, like, taking a breath and just... Like, I did something good. Yeah. Like, kind of taking in the moment, like, Thanos' garden moment, you know, taking in the accomplishment yeah. Um, and like he's been through a lot of decisions. Sure he's he pretty made. tired. Oh yeah, <laughs> just, he's laying down, just man. Let, a nap. let him rest. He doesn't have to die. <laughs> he doesn't die. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> that was how I interpret it. Kind of similar to you is that um, I feel like he could probably live through worse. What I thought was because that's like the last shot that you see, right? Is the camera above him, and then it goes to the credits. And I thought, like, did he die? No, he didn't die. That's what I thought. <laughs> like that was the that was the speed of the yeah. Like the, I had the, the question of like did right he away. die, and I was like, no, probably not. Like, <laughs> like he can't die because if they're gonna make another movie, like I want Ryan Gosling oh, back. Absolutely, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I don't want someone else to. Then it just the story gets even more jumbled. Like, that's K right there, man. That's, yeah, that's our guy. That's right. All right. Um, I think 
we should wrap up this episode. It's already a pretty long episode, which I like the longer episodes. I don't know about you. I just like I just like not restricting ourselves. Yeah, I don't want to rush. Exactly. I mean, we talked about a lot. We talked about the themes. We talked about the plot, the mystery, the acting, the um, cinematography, we, we the cinematography, the origins, the source the code of the story, <laughs> that beautiful tone, the music, <laughs> the costuming. We hit we hit all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I think we did this movie justice. You know, like I don't think we missed anything that we wanted to talk about, which is always a good feeling when we. We did a praise. We bitched about it a little bit. You exactly. Got to get that in there. Perfect. Um, all right. So that wraps up this episode. We want to thank you guys for watching. We post new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Every single week, we're on YouTube and Spotify for those full episodes. But then we also post a bunch of shorts on YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram as well. Yeah, we so, didn't do our usual middle of the episode thanking the audience and asking everyone to like and subscribe. So definitely thank you. And if you've made it this far, you didn't, I mean, we did do it halfway. So if you made it this far, we're giving out cash. Congratulations. <laughs> Every listener gets 50 bucks. All you got to do is send us a DM on Instagram and we'll get you your money. Yeah. Well, that's going to be coming in the mail on the uh, 30th of February, 2049. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew. And, and that's, that's a wrap. wrap.